John chapter 9, verses 1 through 34. We're going to spend most of our time in the beginning of, the, of this chapter, which you'll see in a moment. But what I want to do is just read for you out of the ESV, English Standard Version, John chapter 9. There are Bibles in the back if you don't have one. If um, you want to follow along with us, that's great. But if you don't have one, literally, uh, please take one with you. It's our gift to you. John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 34. Hear the word of the Lord. As he, that's Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must, Jesus talking, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground. That's right. He spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and all those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but it looks like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, how were your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought him to the Pharisees. It's never a good thing. They brought him to the Pharisees, who had been the one who's been formerly blind. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him, How have you received your sight? And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep his Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who's a sinner do such things? We pick it up because I don't want to start yelling at everybody. Okay. And they were divided, verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received the sight until they called the parents of the man who received the sight and asked them, is that your son who say you, he was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, I love this. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out from the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So the second time they called the man who had been blind. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know. Though I was blind, now I see. (laughs) They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I already told you. And you would not listen. Why, do you want to be his disciple? Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God had spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. 
And the man answered, I- I'll tell you, he's got some real wit. Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from and yet open my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God, does the will of God, God listens to him. Never since the world began had it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a blind man, a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do not do these things. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out. What a story. May God add a blessing, not only to the reading of his word, to the preaching of his word, that we had eyes to see this morning. Amen? All right. So kids, you're dismissed. We're in chapter 9. If you have not checked in, please do so. We're in John chapter 9. We're going to cover this chapter, as I said, in two, two parts. This week, we're going to look mostly at the, at the miracle that's taken place in verses 1 through 8. We'll kind of look end with the conversation that took place afterwards, and then we come back to this text. We'll look at the conversation and then launch into the rest of the, the chapter and wrap it up in two pieces. Okay, so Jesus heals a blind man, as we see, and to put it in its immediate context, it actually goes back to chapter 7. The context of what's going on historically goes back to chapter 7, which we have been looking at over the past several weeks, that is the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, a week-long celebration that includes thanking God for the fall harvest. They were harvesting olives and, and fruits at that time. They were thanking God, and it was also a festival that was recalling remembering and celebrating God's provision of the Israelites while they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness after being set free from slavery in Egypt and on the way to the promised land. It was, it was really that, that deliverance, that, that you know, coming to the promised land that really defined them as God's people. And they're celebrating it. Now it's hundreds of years later, hundreds of years later, and they're celebrating this you know, time during the Feast of Booths. Now, according to chapter 8, verse 37, if you have a Bible, you can see that. It is the last day of the feast, the last day of this week-long feast. And our text this morning uh, proceeds from a lengthy dialogue between Jesus and the Jewish people, Jesus and the Jewish religious people, and the crowd that had come together at the last day of the feast. And throughout this dialogue, Jesus has made many claims about himself, and they did everything they could to avoid dealing with who Jesus is. The Gospel of John chapter 20 says, all that was written was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Christ. He is the Son of God, and by believing you have life in his name. That's the point of the Gospel, that's the point of me standing here, flapping my gums, that you would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's making these declarations about himself throughout this chapter. And last week we saw this very final and, and definitive claim of Jesus. Look at chapter 8, verse 58. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Mark that in your Bible. It is an unequivocal claim that he, Jesus, is the God of Israel in human form. This, this self-identification, this, this, I, this before Abraham was I am, comes from Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. You want to mark that in your Bible next to that verse. Moses asked God, who shows himself in a burning bush, to identify himself because God tells him to go to Pharaoh and to tell Pharaoh to let 
the slaves go, the ones he's had in captivity to free labor and make, let his people go so that God's people can worship the Lord. And, you know, Moses just says, who should I, sell, you know, who should I say is sending me? A burning bush is not going to fly. Exodus chapter 3, Moses asks and God says to him, I am. I am who I am. And he said, go to the people of Israel and tell them, I am sent you. That term in the Hebrew, that term in the Greek, the two original languages of the New Testament, I mean the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Bible, means he is the self-existent one. He is not dependent on anything or anyone for his existence. He is independent. He is the great I am, unchangeable, eternal, self-existent one. Whatever he was, he is, he will always be. No beginning, no end, forever. And make no mistake, when Jesus claims to be the I am, before Abraham, I am, Jesus would make it very clear that he is the one whom Moses met, the eternal God. Now, Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons and other cults will tell you that Jesus is a created being. They are eternally wrong. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, in chapter 8, verse 24, that I am, I am the one that Moses met. I am the eternal one, the unchangeable one, the self-existent one. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins, eternally separated from God. It's very important. The claim is not only I existed before Abraham, but I am eternal, and only God is eternal. So you can see the claim in which Jesus is making. And that's why, look at chapter 8, verse 59. The religious leaders knew exactly what he was talking about. Look what it says. Picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. We pick up our narrative right there. Jesus is leaving the temple after making this claim, and he's dodging rocks being thrown at him, right? So he's leaving, and he just happens to see a blind man, and in love and in grace, heals him from this lifelong suffering, begging, blindness. Four headings. We'll spend the most one in the cause, but look at... The condition, we'll look at the condition of the man and what that says to us today. We'll look at the cause. They say, who, why is this happening? We'll look at the command, the whole idea of spitting on the ground. I know growing up, stop spitting, that's disgusting. You could say, Jesus does it. <laughs> All the parents are like, no, that's not flying, I don't care. <laughs> and fourth, the conversation. So that's our outline. Number one, very simple, verse one. Leaving the temple, they, they, they know he's claiming to be the God I am from the Old Testament, the self-existent one. They pick up stones because it's blasphemy, and they want him dead. And he passed by, he gets out of the way. It's not his time yet, right? Verse one says, as he passed, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, it is no accident that this incident, this miracle that takes place is during the last day of the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. If you remember from a few weeks ago, there's a ceremony called the Illumination of the Temple. Right? Four giant candelabras were brought into the court of women or, or the treasury, same place. 
And during this lively celebration, the priest would be there. They would be singing. They'll be dancing on the steps. There's orchestra there. There's harps and, and cymbals and trumpets and, and countless musical instruments. There's singing and dancing. And they light these candelabras, these giant candelabras, and it would illuminate the temple and flow. The light would just flow into the city streets. It was, in, it was done to remember the, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud that guided them, that protected them in the wilderness. And they're celebrating and remember that Shekinah glory, the Shekinah cloud, the very presence of God that led them in their way, that protected them. And Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I am that Shekinah glory. I am the one in which you're celebrating and pointing to. That's me. And anyone who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And now Jesus, as he leaves the temple, very sharply, very clearly, in this chapter portrays exactly what happens when light shines the blind sea. Others will run, unfortunately, we'll see. As we walk through this chapter, people are blinded by the light. And my prayer this morning, as I said before, is that we would not turn but that we would allow the light to shine brightly, the beauty, the magnificent, the glory of Christ shine in our souls. That's my prayer. And that you would not turn from him and become more hard, but you would turn to him and allow him into your life. And what's so cool about this chapter, moving ahead a little bit, is Jesus says, I am the light of the world, chapter 8. In chapter 9, he shines his light to a blind man, loves him, cares for him, embraces him, and goes after him. And then in chapter 10, Jesus is the good shepherd. Ha! The good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. You can see where we're going with this. All right, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but that's in chapter 10. Jesus leaving the temple, he sees a man born blind. The man's blindness is from birth. John tells us that's important. Uh, no one, as he said, no one has ever known anyone. Like, it just heightens the miracle. Like he's been, he never saw before. Maybe he had no eyes, we don't know, but he was absolutely blind from birth. And it makes it more striking that God will heal him as he is. Now, he's leaving the temple. We don't know exactly where, but maybe by the southern gates, Jesus sees this man. But what I want us to see first in this condition is that this healing, what's going on now with this, is a beautiful picture, a beautiful illustration, a beautiful, really, reality for all of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, who have come to know and trust Jesus, ones who have embraced him as Lord and Savior of our lives. It's an illustration of that. We are all blind. The Bible says that all have sinned. We are all beggars seeking worldly things, seeking things that will just get us through the day. We are all blind. We are all beggars. No matter what we achieve, no matter what we accomplish, no matter what we gain, we're still blind of the things of God, that nothing satisfies, nothing gets us to that place of being in that place of just resting in him because we're blind. We love our sin, the Bible says. The psalmist says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. You know what that means? It means that sin passes from one generation to the other. Just look around. It's not really, when we talk about that here and we talk about the brokenness of sin, we're not just talking about bank robbery. Just don't think of, oh yeah, sinning, bank robbery. I haven't robbed the bank lately. Sin is not only breaking the moral commands of God, but sin, according to scripture, 
is breaking the first command. It is treasuring, loving, embracing, holding on to anything else, anything else more significant in your life than Christ alone. It's called sin. It's called idolatry. That's passed from generation to generation to generation to generation ever since Adam and Eve. Who among us can claim we are without sin? Who among us can claim that we don't treasure other things? Who among us could say we never cheat, stole, lie, or anything of that nature? We're all in the same boat. This man was blind, so are we. It means he's spiritually blind too, that he's unable to see God. He was unable to see Jesus, and we in our blindness cannot see Jesus. We can't even, the Bible says, seek Jesus in our blindness. Romans 3 says there is no one who seeks God. That's the condition of all humanity ever since Adam's sin and sin entered the world, death entered the world, sin entered the world. That's our condition. We can't see, we can't seek. Here's the good news. But God sees. Praise God, God sees our condition. He saw the blind man. That's the gospel. That's the good news. We strive and strive to justify our life and our existence only to come up short. We know it every night we lay our head down on the bed. But just like this blind man, we need an outside intervention. We need God to do some work in our life. And we see that we're blind and we don't see him, but the gospel is he sees us. And God pursues us even though we don't pursue him. And God loves us even when we don't love him. And God rescues us even though we are helpless, drowning in our sin. 1 John 4, we love him because he first loved us. That's the gospel. We seek the Lord because he first sought us. We're rescued, snatched from our death, from our blindness as he reached down and snatches us out. This very poor blind man who was forced to beg to simply survive is going to have a life encounter with Jesus. So let me ask this question, church. If you and I are followers of Jesus Christ, do we stop and see the marginalized, the poor, the broken, those who are hurting around us, Dr. Al Mohler, he's uh, from Southwestern, wonderful theologian. I was watching him this week on, on YouTube. Um, I think it popped up on Facebook. But anyway, he, he's talking about all the cultural changes going on in our country, country and all the things that are happening right now. And although many of it is in a direct affront to the God who made us, his point was not only that it's, it's not of God, but it's not really going to work. That people who are... Uh, uh, turning their back on God, just as we all did, are going to come up empty-handed. And when it comes and when it happens and when they see the futility of everything they are striving for, they're going to be devastated. And he said this. He said, church, are you ready to love them? Are you ready to care for them? Are you ready to give them the answer in which they've been seeking and when they're broken, are you ready to tell them about Jesus because you too were blind? See, darkness brought this blind beggar into relationship with Christ. There, there are numerous accounts right here in this room and testimonies right here in this room how God reached down while you were in a very dark, dark place and displayed his light, his glory, his beauty and brought you into a saving relationship with him. Many times it's in this darkness of pain that the light shines Death of a child, death of a marriage, a broken relationship, financial disaster, 
a bad doctor's report. Many of you know a friend of mine, David Chowenhill, was blind and lost his sight at a very young age. And for years and years and years, and then after a relationship disaster, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. Radically changed by the power of the gospel. And I remember holding his hand as he's ready to pass. He had died a few years back. And tell him, you know, you haven't seen anything in 40, 50 years. But when you get sight, the first thing you'll see is the Lord Jesus Christ. Comfort, brother, with those words. I think sometimes we walk right by those that Jesus wants us to see. Remember Bartimaeus? Bartimaeus in Mark 10? Son of David, he cried out, have mercy on me. And they're like, shh, be quiet, don't bother the master. Son of David, I don't care what you got. Be quiet, be quiet. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus says, what do you want? I want to receive my sight. (laughs) Jesus heals him. Do we walk past by those people? Are we too busy? Maybe we're looking around the world with the wrong eyes. Maybe, maybe, could it be that we're looking through the eyes of our culture and what, what they think, what they determine, who is worthy of respect, honor, and dignity, and not seeing that everyone's created in the Imago Dei and is worthy of dignity, value, and respect? Maybe that's the reason. But I'll tell you this, this I know. Jesus Christ is ascended to the Father. He sent the Spirit. He does his work through his people. And his people are the ones that he wants to see through their eyes wants to be their hands, wants to be their feet, and he wants to see the broken through the eyes of the Savior. And that's you and I. And I'll tell you this too. Let that truth be cemented in this reality. Every child of God, if you're here and you are a child, this is for you. Every child of God was poor, Broken, an outcast, unable to see, without hope, without the ability to respond until Jesus saw you in your sinful, broken condition. And by a miracle of grace and through love, open your eyes to see his beauty, his incalculable worth of Christ, and then empowered you by his spirit for the affection and the ability to run to him for your rescue. It is not of your work. It is the work of God. And if you truly See that, you'll understand. But if you don't, and you can't see people through those lenses, you don't understand the gospel. I pray that that gospel truth will just press in your heart that you were blind beggar until Christ opened your eyes. Look at the cause. The cause. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? General principle of the day was very simple popular phrase of that day was this. There is no death without sin, and there is no suffering without iniquity. You know the book of Job, right? His friends basically said, Job, what did you do? You did something for all this suffering. You must have sinned. They'll pull out scriptures like Ezekiel 18, Exodus 34, where, where God forgives sins, but he visited He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children upon children upon the fourth generation. Must be something you did. If not, it must be something your dad did. Now remember, this poor blind beggar is blind, not deaf. Hey, Rabbi, who sinned? Is this the wicked guy? (laughs) Or was his mother a sinner? Very sensitive crew, right? He's probably looking around like, really? You got a quarter? I really don't need to hear this. 
not very sensitive. They too need to learn to see through the eyes of Christ. They were looking through the eyes of the world. Now, before we deal with the question about sin and suffering, let me just take a moment and say that Jesus did not say that suffering is never, never directed or directly connected to a person's sin. He didn't say that. In this instance, he does. But in a very real sense, and we covered this in chapter 5, I think Pastor Ricky did, um, all suffering, brokenness, and blindness, and disabilities are due to sin. You just have to read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It makes it very clear that in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the universe perfect. God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden, in God's good creation. In, God, in the garden, there is spiritual, physical, psychological, relational, and emotional perfection. The Jewish people call it shalom. There is perfect peace with everything. God's kingdom, unfractured, functioning, in the way it was intended to, God's people gathering together in one place under God's good, loving, kind rule. And we know what happens next, Genesis 3. Sin comes in, Adam sins, rebels. Spiritually, he's separated. Physically, psychologically, emotionally, and relationally, the world unravels because of sin. We live in it. Paul says even creation itself groans as it waits for its new body. But even with that said, there are times that suffering is related directly to our stupidity. I don't think anybody would deny that. How many stupid things did we do? And we get results and consequences for it. We won't go around and ask everybody. <laughs> Roman 1 speaks about the wrath of God being revealed against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. We studied Acts, we saw Sapphira and, and uh, Ananias drop dead due to their sin. Corinthians talks about coming together for the Lord's table and drink, doing shots of Jim Beam rather than sharing a meal. And people were sick and died over that, okay? So if you gamble all your money away and you live in a cardboard box, please don't blame Adam, okay? If you have liver failure because you're drinking too much of Jim Beam, don't blame your mom. Your action caused that. Jesus said in chapter 5, he saw a man, he said, I've healed you, now go and sin no more. What you're doing, stop doing. But there are many times we know, just not only scripture, but by living more than two days, that suffering comes to us, brokenness comes to us, disabilities become part of our life, although it's part of the broken world, Genesis 1 and 2, it is not connected to anything that we did or our parents did. It's simply because we live in planet Earth, a broken place called Earth. Here in our text, chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus says, it's not that this man sinned, that's his answer, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Okay, underline that. The principle here is very simple. Everything we go through, everything we suffer from, everything we go through in this life is purposeful. There is nothing that God does that does not have a purpose. There is nothing that God allows that does not have a purpose. His purpose, his final purpose, his ultimate purpose is the display of his glory. It says that the works of God might be displayed. Now, F.F. Bruce, brilliant New Testament scholar, has some deep insight, and I just want to read you his quote about this healing. This is what he said. Follow me on this. This, F.F. Bruce writes, this 
this healing, does not mean that God deliberately caused the child to be born blind in order that, after many years, his glory should be displayed in the removal of the blindness. To think so would, be, would again be uh, aspersion, slander on the character of God. It does mean that God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when the child grew up to manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. Okay? Seeing this work of God, and he might turn to the true light of the world, end quote. So you can use the word ordained, you can use the word permitted if you like, but one thing we know for sure, that God is sovereign over everything, all of creation. And in this case, permitted, he allowed this man to be born blind so that he can display his power and glory at this time. God's sovereignty is his right to reign, his power to reign, his authority to reign over the universe to govern all things for his own wise and holy purposes for our good and his ultimate glory. He is sovereign. He allows, he permits all kinds of things, and overrules it by his sovereignty, okay? If God foresees and permits a child to be born who cannot see, it's not an accident. Or somehow God missed this one. He must have fallen asleep when the chromosomes and this child was conceived and woke up and said, what happened? That is not the case. God is sovereign, Pastor Rick Warren, some of you read his book. It's a good book. God has purpose behind every problem. Regardless of the cause, none of your problems could happen without God's permission. Everything that happens to a child of God is father-filtered, and he intends to use it for good, even when Satan and others mean it for bad, Genesis 50. Because God is sovereignly in control, accidents are just accidents in God's good plan for you. There's a grand design behind everything. Your life is not a result of random chance, fate, or luck. There is a master plan. History is his story. God is pulling the strings, end quote. One all has to do is one only has to look at the book of Job and see that God is sovereign over life and death, angels, demons, nations, natures, disease, and blessing. Job 1, naked I came. Naked I shall return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 2.10, shall we receive good from the hand and not trouble from the hand of God? Every area under God's sovereignty. God has a purpose. There is no suffering without purpose. God is a God of purpose. Let me read one more passage to you. 1 Peter 1.6, listen to this. In this you rejoice. Peter's talking about your security, your salvation in Christ, your redemption. In this you rejoice, secure in God's salvation. Though, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found. Trials, difficult, hardship, genuineness of your faith may be found to result what it's getting to, in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen, we go through trials 
in our life, and we can still have joy if we see it from the perspective of God and cooperate with what he's doing in our life, purifying our faith and ultimately giving him the glory and praise. John Piper writes this. That truth, the truth is that suffering can only have ultimate meaning. Listen, this is what the text is saying. Give glory to God. Display the glory of God. This is for God's glory to be displayed. That's in our text. What Piper points out is it can only have ultimate meaning if it's in relationship to God. He says this means that for our suffering to have ultimate meaning, God must be supremely valuable to us, more valuable than health and life. Many things in the Bible make no sense until God becomes your supreme value, end quote. Suffering, difficulties, hardship will not purify our faith and praise and give him glory unless we are treasuring him above all things in this world. But healing's not the only way in which God gets glory, right? I mean, we see this in this text. This man is going to be healed of his blindness. But if you know the, the Bible in 2 Corinthians 12, the apostle Paul goes to the Lord three times, take this thorn from my flesh, this bodily something going on, it, it, it's, it's tearing me down, Lord, please heal me. God says, nope. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Stay the way you are. I will sustain you in it. I will give you grace in it. I will hold you up in it. I will display my glory in it. So whether you're healed of your sight or you have a thorn in the flesh that God's not healing, both have the same outcome. At least that's what God is trying to get at. The display of his glory. So that when all is said and done, we could say, you are enough. Do you realize that this blind man in verse 38, we won't get to it today, through his blindness, through his suffering, is brought to faith and worship in Christ Don't tell me God makes mistakes. Don't tell me this man was born blind because God messed up. Psalm 139, for you formed my inner parts, knitted me together in my mother's womb, I praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my inward form. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You are sovereign over every day of my life. You saw me being knit in my mother's womb. Tell me God makes a mistake. Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to tell him to let my people go. Moses like, really? Ever since I was young, chapter 4 of Exodus. Ever since I was one, I'm not eloquent. Uh, either, uh, either in the past or since, uh, I'm slow of speech and, and, and my tongue is not working. Many people think he stuttered. And now, Lord, you're asking me to go to Pharaoh. You know what, know what God told Moses? I'm worried about what you're going to say. Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go. I have a purpose for you. I will be with your mouth. I will teach you what you shall speak. Rabbi, who sinned? Him? Parents? Neither. So that the glory of God may be seen. What makes God glorious? What makes Jesus beautiful? When in the darkest hour, 
Under the most arduous pain, we declare together, God is enough. God is enough. He is good. He will care for me. He will guide me. He will get me through this. God is enough. Who am I in heaven but you, O Lord, psalmist writes. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and the portion forever. When it's connected to God, there's purpose. Look at verse 4. We, mark that in your Bible, we, Jesus turns to the plural. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. The term we must, word must is urgency. We saw it in uh, John 4. Jesus must go through or had to go through Samaria. It, It talks about urgency. It talks about necessity. And notice what Jesus writes though. He says we. Jesus now brings his disciples into the fold. We must do the works of the one who sent me. You see what he's doing? He's saying, listen, it's not just what's happening here. You guys need to see this. You guys need to understand this, that this is your responsibility as well. We need to be about doing the works of God. John tells us in chapter, let's see, what chapter? Chapter 6, verse 29. Jesus says, what is the work of God? Jesus says to believe on him, the one whom he has sent. What is the work that he's talking about? Is pointing this man, bringing this man, leading this man to worship and faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, we must be doing the work. This is about our responsibility. Stop looking through the eyes of this world and start looking through the eyes of the Savior. I'm going to be here for a little while. That's what he says. Uh, I'm going to be here. It's going to be a short time. Night is still coming. In other words, I'm going to be here, but soon enough, I'm going to the cross. Soon enough, I'm going to be taken from you. While it is still day, let's keep doing this. Night is coming. See what he's saying? Night is coming. In fact, the night represents darkness. It represents the apostles and the disciples who will flee when Jesus is crucified. And it won't happen again. Listen. When Jesus is buried, rises again and sends forth his spirit to empower them They are sent out doing the work of God. They're demonstrating and declaring the gospel. That's what the power of the Holy Spirit will do in their life. When Jesus talks about, while it is still day, I am the light of the world. You see that in verse 5? Right? I am the light of the world. He's not saying that when darkness comes, when I'm crucified, there will be no more light. That's not what he's saying. Right? But he's saying the very presence of God, the very reality of the invisible made visible, is here for a season. When I'm crucified and return, yes, the Spirit will come. We are called to be salt and light of the earth. But the very manifestation of God walking in human form, that light, that special light that Jesus shined is gone until his return. They will continue on. And family, that's what I want you to see. I want you to see that Jesus is telling you and me in this passage. This is not just 2,000 years ago. Jesus is, is bringing us into the fold as well. He's saying the same thing to you and I today. Yes, yes there, there are miracles happening. Yes, there are things that are happening. The blind are seeing. But that's the work that we must do as the family of God. Are you sharing your faith? Are you, are you loving people? Are you pointing them to Jesus Christ? Are you doing the works of God, which is what? To believe on him. Are you pointing other people to believe on him? That's what he's saying. So you have the cause, the condition, he's blind, the cause, the display of God's glory. Look at the command. Having said these things, he spit on the ground. 
I would, can you imagine? What were they thinking? He's just looking at him and goes, spits on the ground. Bends down, makes mud with saliva, takes the mud from the spit and puts it on the guy's face. And, you know, and the guy couldn't see, so it's not like he knew. Because if he, you know, maybe if he saw something like, yo, you ain't putting that on my face. Like, what are you doing? You know, he don't know. Puts it on his face and tells him, go wash in the pool of Salom, which means scent. So he went and washed and he came back seeing. Now, this is very interesting. Jesus is declaring to be light of the world. And now he's illustrating the point by giving light to this beggar, this man born blind. Now, there are a lot of, not a lot, but there are some theologians that say, why would he spit on the ground? There's an old ancient saying from an old Jewish rabbi that says, the saliva of a firstborn had healing properties. Other rabbis think, which we all probably do, that saliva is not really that great, and it's actually connected with some magical things that were going on, so rabbis wouldn't do it. The church fathers, though, that I've read, I think they got it right. They said that Jesus spit on the ground and made mud as an allusion to what? Genesis 2, God formed man out of the dust of the earth. And here is the great I am, creator, sovereign, eternal God, in human form, standing before them, spits on the ground, takes the dirt in which man came from, and puts it on his eyes. Go see. Maybe he gave him brand new eyeballs, I don't know. But he came back seeing Now, notice in verse 13 and 14 and 16, it was during the Sabbath. So they were like, not happy. It's the Sabbath, right? You can't heal on the Sabbath. You know why that's cool? I learned this week. On the Sabbath, you couldn't heal a man unless it was danger of of death. Like if they were dying, you you could work something out. I don't know how you did that. But unless it was danger of life and death, there was no work on the Sabbath, no healing on the Sabbath. And spitting on the ground, the dirt, is the same Greek word used for dough. So you know what Jesus was doing. He was kneading, K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G. He was making mud. He was kneading like dough. He violated the Sabbath. Not in the Bible Sabbath, but their stupid Sabbath. And there's stupid regulations. Nowhere in the Bible says, thou shalt not need dirt from the ground. It doesn't say that. But to them, Jesus was working on the Sabbath by making this mud through saliva and dirt. And they are very, very upset, right? Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. That's what he's trying to tell them. And if the Sabbath is about rest, which it is, healing is like ultimate rest. He's healed. He, he could see. And that's why we recuperate on the one day of the week. We have a Sabbath. We rest. And he got this ultimate rest from suffering and struggles from being born blind. He tells him, listen, go down to the pool of Siloam. Look what John says. He says, it is the pool called Sent. Very cool. The pool of Siloam is translated word from the word Siloa, or to send. The pool of Siloam was in the city of Jerusalem. It was in the southwest portion. And the name Sent most people believe the name sent came from the idea that there was a pool in the Kindred Valley, which is east of Jerusalem. There was a pool, excuse me, a spring called Gehon, G-I-H-O-N. And this spring of living water outside the city of Jerusalem was 
brought into Jerusalem under this tunnel called Hezekiah's Tunnel. If you remember the Old Testament, Hezekiah was, was fortifying the city because they were being attacked by the Assyrian army. So Hezekiah said, look, we get locked in here. We got no water. We're going to die. There's a living spring not far from here. Why don't we dig a tunnel? No one will know. You could probably bring people in and out of the country. Never mind that. But the tunnel brings it in and water would flow. So when they, they sieged the Jerusalem, they had water to drink. Right? They got no faucets like us. So this was pool that was, Siloam was water, living water, sent. See that? From this kindred valley into Jerusalem. You can read about that in Second Chronicles. Now, John wants us to see this. Jesus is using this sent water, this pool of Siloam, as a symbolic to point to the reality of who Jesus is. And he does it in two ways. Do you remember the water ceremony? We talked about it, I don't know, weeks ago. The, the, the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam with golden pitchers during the Feast of Tabernacles. And they would have this celebratory time with palm trees and they would sing and, and they would shake the branches and the palm trees. They would go back up into the temple with these pitchers of water. Remember that? And they would go and they would be singing. They'd be celebrating God's provision that he gave water from the Rock of Moses, God's provision of living water, God's provi- all the symbolic beauty of this water ceremony. God promised to pour forth the Spirit. God promised the Messianic age where the rivers of living water will come. And they poured out on the altar the living water from the pool of Siloam. And it was Jesus that stood up and said, remember, during the ceremony? He stood up and he said what? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's the fulfillment of that water ceremony. You see? You see what John is trying to say? Go to that pool of Siloam, the living water. The very thing that points to my very existence. I am the living water. I am the all-sufficient one. I am the one that can heal you. I am the one who's a source of life. Go to the pool of scent, living water. Number two, Jesus has been saying it over and over again. We've seen it a hundred times. I have been sent by the Father. Well, Jesus, all the prophets have been sent by the Father. No, Jesus says what? I create, I heal, I have the same prerogatives, privileges, exclusive rights as God himself. I am the one uniquely sent by the Father. Blind man, go to the pool called sent. I am the sent one. I'm the Messiah that was sent. You see, the, you see how beautiful that is? Jesus is pointing again to the reality that he alone can satisfy. Jesus points to the reality that he alone that can sustain our eternally thirsty souls that we can drink forever, forever and be satisfied in him. Let me tell you, the blind man in this story the blind man, my friend David, the blind man in the story, Bartimaeus and whatever else we may be suffering through, needs more than a healing in this world. They need the eternal healing of Jesus. This blind man will die, but he will not die in his sins. He will die in the glorious truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and is eternally present with his God. That's what happens when you have genuine faith in him. Now, last, we're going to run through this quickly. Five conversations, we're going to look at four, we're not going to hit them much, I'm just going to make a couple of comments and we're going to close. This blew up in Jerusalem. 
everyone's getting involved in what just happened to this blind man who went down to the pool, pool of Siloam, very simply, mud, boom, going down, whoop, wash my face, I could see. No magic dust, right, no sprinkling, of, you know, it's just a very simple miracle. He just goes down there, boom, he gets sight. And what happens in this story between verses 8 through the end of the chapter is he becomes more and more bold, and the disciples, excuse me, the blind man becomes more and more bold, and the Jewish people, the Pharisees, and everybody else become more and more dark. That's what you'll notice. Look at verses 8 through 12. The man, blind man talks to his neighbors. They're like, you know, this can't be the guy. They're like, yeah, that's him. Like, no, that can't be him. I mean, his neighbors saw him begging. Who would see somebody beg on a street corner more than anyone other than your neighbors? Like, they recognize him. Like, no, this can't be him. No, this is really him. He keeps saying, I'm him. Verses 13 through 17, the blind man and the Pharisees. How did you get this, right? Who, who, he just told me to go wash and see. The, the man Jesus told me, he tells them in verse 13 through 17. The third conversation is verse 18 through 23. They're like, hmm, something's not right. His neighbors, the Pharisees, go find his parents. They bring his parents in like, hey, listen, man, is this guy your son? Yeah, son. How did he get this way? I don't know. Don't ask me. He's old enough, I'm not going to get kicked out of here. Like, they're going to kick him out of the synagogue because that's what they were afraid of. They're afraid they're going to be, now don't think, just go to another church down the street. Kicked out of synagogue in Jerusalem is leaving your community, being excommunicated from your community, right? Being an outcast to your own people. Major problem, right? Like, I don't know, go ask him. I'm not looking to get kicked out anywhere, right? Fourth conversation, verses 24 through 35. It's my favorite. They bring him in again, and they say, give glory to God. We know that Jesus is a sinner. See that verse 24. He's like, uh, no, I don't think so. Yes, join us in our blasphemy because we just called God a sinner. He's like, I'm not doing it. Verse 25, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. Right? So personal testimony trumps lousy philosophy. Like, I don't know, I'm not arguing with you guys. You guys really know your Bible. I know one thing. I'm blind, I see. I don't know what else to tell you. Let that settle in for a second. You don't have to know your entire New Testament. I was blind, now I see. I, I, I don't know. I, I, you know. I was walking, doing my own thing, running my own life, and all of a sudden, bam, Jesus comes up and says, I forgave you of your sin. And, no, it lived for me. I'm, I don't know how it happened. I was blind, now I see. Man, something really strange about you. I was blind, now I see. Really? Is there anything else? No, I was blind, now I see. I, I don't know. I put the mud, I'm gone, I see now. It was really simple. <laughs> Verse 25, I love it. And you know, when... when Personal testimony is great over a bad argument. I'll tell you that right now. And then verse 26, it grows and grows. He says, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already. You're not listening. We want to hear it again. You want to be his disciple? Now they get really mad. Antagonistic, verse 28. You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Really? Hmm. Jesus already said, if you were Moses, you would believe me. Now we see the courage. Look at verse 30. The man answered, why? Hmm, I could see him. This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. He opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, yet he, he listens to people who worship him and does his will. God listens to him. Never has anyone ever opened the eyes of the blind. Look at verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And what you find in these passages, he says, the man Jesus, the prophet Jesus, I'm not blaspheming Jesus. I'm not calling him a sinner. In fact, I don't see anything because he can't be a sinner. And then he comes to the place of saying, you are God. And he worships him in verse 38. We'll look at that. But we'll see this becoming more and more and more bold. 
Okay, and then look what he says to close in verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Right, when all intellectual argument goes out the window, name calling again. You're a sinner. All right, I got nothing else to say. I mean, I can't get, you know, you're not really telling me what we want to hear, so you're a filthy, wicked sinner, get out of here. So it ends here, we're done, right? Yeah, we're done. All right, you're a sinner, get out. Now, what I want us to see in this story, and especially in this part here, is that when suffering comes, and he suffered, and he's grounded, I think, in a sovereignty of God has done something beautiful, something good. And if we view our suffering as personal, just purposeful, that God is in control. It's an avenue to display his glory. What happens is you become bold. You become compassionate. I don't know everything. I was blind, now I see. I'm declaring Jesus did it. That's all. And how do you get so bold and so compassionate like that? Because he's recognizing that suffering is used of God to bring himself glory. And the root of our joy is in the pursuit of his glory. We say this all the time. He brings glory to himself. If the man was not blind, and we don't know this, I'm just saying, it is his blindness that brought him to salvation. It was his suffering that brought him to Christ. And you have to come to the place that the ultimate good is not simply about our own pleasure, and not about our own pleasure, our freedoms, even our trials and tribulation, our ultimate purpose, the manifestation of God's glory, the fulfillment of his purposes by doing what he does as we display it to the universe. Jonathan Edwards, reading scripture. If you ever know anything about Jonathan Edwards, I, I encourage you to read some stuff by him. He reads scripture and he's come to the conclusion that God is God who created the universe for the display of his beauty, his worth, his value, and our pursuit of joy and happiness is not in any way, not in any way, there's no disparity between the two. That as we seek God's glory as primary and paramount in our life, he gives us satisfaction, joy, and happiness. That's why John Piper says, we glorify God the most when we are most satisfied in him. Through physical healing or through suffering, whether through a thorn in the flesh or whether through eyes that can see, God is sufficient for me. And now let me tell you, and we're gonna wrap it up right here, and I want everyone to pay attention for two more minutes. Where does that come from? How do we get to the place of seeing and savoring and treasuring and glorying as the most important paramount thing in our life? Where does that come from? I'll tell you. The man was born blind, he suffered and he begged and he lived in darkness without hope, just like all of us. It was the display of the glory of Christ. It was the light that shined into his heart that gave him the place of sight and the, and, and the place of worship and the place of eternal life, faith in Christ. Peter says we've been transferred from the darkness unto the light. But because he did, what happened to him? He was excommunicated. He was cast out. He was removed from the temple, the very presence of God, because God shone his light. And family, I will tell you, that's a foreshadow. That, is, that has happened so that we could see beyond that. His casting out was the result of the light coming into this world, but it's a foreshadow of the ultimate casting out. 
In Hebrews chapter 13, it says that Jesus was crucified outside the gate of Jerusalem. A sign of exile, rejection. Jesus experiences the exclusion, the curse that every human being should bear and deserves. He takes on himself. He is alienated on the cross. Mark says that when he died on the hill of Calvary, darkness came over the land, blanketed the hill called Calvary. Light evaporates. Darkness comes. When Jesus becomes our substitute, bearing our sin, our shame, and the wrath we deserve on the cross, he was cast out. On the cross, he cries out with a broken fellowship, broken communion of his Father that eternally existed. He cries out, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's in the darkness of judgment so that you and I can have the light of Christ. He was forsaken, cast out of the, of, of, of the presence of his Father so that we can be brought in to his marvelous light. His suffering and subsequent resurrection of the dead brought infinite glory to God. We may not know all the wise family, and we certainly don't, but we do know that our good God suffered beyond anything we can imagine, and the suffering on the cross brought us into a reconciled relationship to him, to God be the glory, to God be the praise, because the greatest enemy that you and I have is not healing in this life. It is forgiveness of sins and being reconciled to our God. We are just a vapor. And when you have that in mind, when the glory of God, when, when the supreme value of God, when the worthiness of God, when the incalculable worth of God takes paramount in your life when you see the cross and all that he went through and the casting out, the shame and wrath that he took for you so that you can have light, so that you can be in the family of God, you will say too, to God be the glory. To God be the glory. It doesn't, I'm not trying at all making light of suffering. I'm saying that God is enough. His suffering brought us into an eternal relationship with him. Do you know him that way? Have you trusted Christ that way? Do you know him as the savior of the world who died for your sins, who reconciles them for eternity? God has written eternal life in all of our hearts. We know we're going from this place. Have you trusted Christ? Have you trusted Christ? Father, We just thank you so much for this beautiful story you've given us in your word. Father, we thank you for the the way in which you move mightily on, on this blind man's eyes that he could see. But God, more importantly, he saw Jesus, Lord. Please open our hearts, open our minds to see the worth of Christ, that we would run to him for the forgiveness of our sins. We'd run to him and worship him as the one true God and run to him and worship him as our redeemer. And someday, Lord, we will see him face to face. Our eyes will be completely open as we look upon the beauty of Christ. Father, help us as we respond in this next song.